welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 36, recorded on August 23rd. Amazon triggers a Cloud Pod panic. Hey guys, how's it going tonight? Apparently we're all too polite to answer first. I'll go first. It's been a long, long week this week, but wow, it's, uh, it's going to be a great weekend. There you go. It makes the weekend that much better. <laughs> uh, it just means I had to drink more over the weekend, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did finally get over the hangover from last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was. <laughs> <laughs> did take did take a little while. It, a while. it did, it did. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get into news. We actually, uh, we asked at the end of the last episode if we would hopefully not get so much uh, content this week, and we were, we were rewarded handsomely by the, the cloud providers. They did not have the current uh, volume they've had in the last few weeks, so let's get into it. Uh, first of all, a little bit of follow-up. Uh, we talked about Cloudflare uh, filing for IPO. Uh, that has now officially happened. They filed their S1. Uh, first half of the year revenue for them, uh, ending in June 30th, showed $129.2 million in revenue, uh, which is a 48% improvement over the prior year. Uh, and between 2016 and 2018, they achieved a 51% compound annual growth rate, uh, with over 74,000 paying customers using their system. Uh, unfortunately, though, Cloudflare is still unprofitable. Uh, the company generated $36.8 million loss in the first six months of 2019, compared with $32.5 million the same time last year, uh, which is pretty much standard for any startup in the Bay. Uh, someday that'll all come crumbling down. I don't know when, but someday. Uh, they are hoping to raise uh, approximately around $100 million uh, with a launch of the stock in September, and previous valuation was $3.2 billion, uh, with over $332 million uh, from investors to date. So, pretty interesting. Pretty brave, I think. Um, having an IPO for a company which barely has 1% of the CDN market. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a small amount to raise given their valuation. Yeah, uh, I think it was a placeholder amount, uh, if I remember the article, and they haven't finalized what they want to raise, uh, but I think the minimum was $100 million. But yeah. I think uh, in the case of Fastly, I think they raised like $380 million in their IPO. So um, definitely something they're going to do. I, I don't understand why their New York Stock Exchange symbol is net. You know, I don't know how that those rules work, anyways, but uh, that's a little interesting. Yeah, I did some some quick research to figure out how much of the market they had. Cloudflare around one percent, Fastly only about one percent. Uh, Akamai's got over fifty percent, and Cloudfront around about a quarter of the market for CDNs. But Cloudflare isn't really a traditional CDN. Uh, they're, they're more of a reverse proxy that requires you to let them manage your DNS for you. Where was the Cloudfront market share? Cloudfront's about 25%. It was launched in uh, November 18th of 2008. So it's been about 11 years. That's uh, pretty healthy growth. I, I imagine when they started, Akamai was more like 80 or 90%. <laughs> I'm sure. Akamai is super expensive, but you know, they, the infrastructure they have, I think they have more than 200,000 uh, 200, pops globally. Just walking down the street, you're probably walking past an Akamai pop at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you but, probably but you, are. But you do, you do pay handsomely for their service, though. Yes, yes, you do. Uh, but it, you know, it's a good product too. I mean, I've used it in many, many companies in the past, and they have a lot of different things other than CDN too. Uh, like Cloudflare and Fastly are trying to build that as well. So I wouldn't mind them getting knocked down a few pegs and get more competitive on price. So that's always a win. Yeah, one thing I did like about Cloudflare is they do have a free offering, which I don't think anybody else does, unless Ooh. you count Amazon and their. Uh, uh, the, not sure if there's a free tier for Cloudfront, but there's a free offering which gives you some basic functionality. Uh, it doesn't give you WAF, uh, but it does give you DDoS protection, which is pr pretty neat. 
All right, well, let's move on to uh, new news. Uh, first of all, uh, Alibaba uh, has blown past its earnings estimates, and their cloud business has hit a $4.5 billion run rate. Uh, apparently, the slowdown in the Chinese economy has not impacted Alibaba. Uh, revenue of 114.92 billion yen, or uh, 16.74 billion U.S. for the first three months ending June 30th. Uh, analysts expected uh, 111.73 billion yen versus the 114.92 billion reported, and adjusted earnings per share were 12.55 yen. Uh, well above the 10.25 yen expected. Overall, the core commerce business, which includes their cloud uh, and marketplace product, uh, had revenue growth of 66% in the first quarter to $1.13 billion, giving it that $4.5 million annual run rate, and represents 7% of Alibaba's total sales. The bulk of their revenues do come from China, uh, where they are twice the market share of AWS in that region. That doesn't surprise me, given the, the sort of legal situation around doing business in China. Yeah, but it... It is pretty cool, though. I mean, that's that you read everything about all these companies and features and and case studies. But what it comes down to is who are people picking? And sure, they've got an advantage right now in China over AWS, maybe based on rules and regulations. But that's the game over there, and they're winning. It would be interesting to see what their revenues were for their non-Chinese uh, cloud presence. I'd be curious how much that is versus their China run rate. But um, yeah, still, it's really great for them. And if you're doing business in China, it's definitely a provider to check out and to use if you need their capabilities and their regions that they have. Uh, DigitalOcean has continued to uh, be the cloud of my heart and has launched the new Manage MySQL and Redis database services. Uh, DigitalOcean has launched these, uh, and they're the first product announcement since the new leadership came on board. Uh, they quote here from Shivan Ramji, DigitalOcean's Senior Vice President of Product, with the additions of MySQL and Redis, DigitalOcean now supports three of the most requested database offerings, making it easier for developers to build and run applications rather than spending time in a complex management. Starts it. $15 a month, which is a bit of a bargain. And they give you some free stuff too. I, I found that, that they would do uh, daily backups for you and retain them for seven days. And it's highly available. You can scale up readers as needed, but they also uh, will promote one of those to a master if there's a, any kind of failure. So it's awesome. $15, good value. Yeah, it's just I, I, I want to see how many people are using it, DigitalOcean in general, and how quickly they're growing. It's tough to find. No, I mean, they're not publicly traded, right? Yeah. So you're not going to get that data. But I do really like them. They're part of my prediction for the year. So I continue to report news on them because I will continue to drive their business if I can. So I found a <laughs> couple articles in there. And I found like 2017, they had mentioned $175 million uh, run rate. Uh, and then 2019, a $200 million run rate. So definitely growing. Uh, maybe not as quickly as some of the other scalers. I mean, they're they're definitely not even on the magic quadrant, right? So, yeah. <laughs> they're, you know, they're definitely very targeted at developers who are just trying to get stuff started quickly, and that's kind of their their niche. But, you know, developers who are passionate about a product can end up, you know, making production changes sometimes to that platform. So, for we'll sure, see. that's how that's how Amazon started. It is. It's exactly how Amazon started. I'm sure with the with the general climate of wanting people wanting their privacy back again, and uh, especially with Google and Amazon doing, and, and as you're also doing business with um, with governments around the world, DigitalOcean may be the place to go if you want um, a bit more privacy. Maybe very possible. All right. Well, moving on to uh, AWS, uh, they have a new EC2 feature to allow you to trigger a kernel panic uh, to diagnose unresponsive EC2 instances. Uh, so this is a diagnostic interrupt. You just make a simple API call, and you can trigger a kernel panic for your EC2 instance. And depending on how you have that configured, it'll either create a crash dump, load a secondary kernel for you, or obtain a call trace. Uh, the feature has no additional charges, and it is supported on all AWS Nitro-based systems except for the ARM-based one. Uh, and the AP API is available in all regions and GovCloud on launch. So take that all the other services who only launch in one region 
Yeah, Mr. MVP. <laughs> Where's there? I wonder if I wonder if it already supports tagging. <laughs> <laughs> there was no there was no mention of tagging in the article, but uh... <laughs> that's yeah, that's funny. You know, this kind of solves one of the long running feature requests I had, which was um, you know if if there's ever a security incident and you need to take a, a sort of a forensic image of a machine, you you have no you have no way of doing that without logging in and sort of tainting it yourself. And so I, I sort of had this, this feature request for a way to suspend the VM to disk and then get a copy of the RAM dump or something like that. And that was that was always kind of turned down by the EC2 team. But being, if you can configure your VM uh, appropriately, then by triggering a kernel panic, you can have it dump the RAM to disk for, for a forensic analysis, which which is really going to be great for the security side of things. Neat. Yeah, there's some free tools out there for analyzing crash dumps and things, but um, I'm not sure if they support this yet, but I know in Ubuntu and other other Linux distributions, you can actually do a, a remote dump. So instead of saving it to a local disk, you can actually you know, SSH and uh, copy the contents of RAM to another server someplace else, which will be even better. But I mean, that would be a, an EC2 host that's somewhat responsive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a, this is an EC2 host that's unresponsive. And, you know, I've, I've had this happen with especially T2 micros <laughs> when they just basically halt. The good thing about this, I mean, the, 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 the magic uh, sysrec key goes back like to the beginning of, of uh, Unix, I think. And so it's a very low level interrupt which triggers this. And so the, there's not much the operating system can do but read and write um, some I.O. And obviously, if the network's not work working, then uh, then you're kind of boned, I guess. But <laughs> hopefully, there's at least one one uh, EC2 instance up that you could copy your files to. We're not talking about Azure here. Hmm. I think we uh, I think we talked to a couple weeks ago about Prime Day, but uh, did I didn't have a chance to ask? Did either of you guys buy anything on Prime Day? I did. What, what did you buy, John? I I got a bargain on uh, some SanDisk micro SD cards. Ooh. For a digital camera or for. Uh, more nefarious purposes. I'm not sure. If, is the digital camera market even exist anymore now? People have got 24 megapixel cameras on their phones. I don't oh, know. I have a really nice uh, three-fourths camera that I love that I take on trips and stuff. So, yeah, I, I still have a digital camera I use sometimes. Yeah. Uh, not I, all the time. I still have mine. It still takes the old compact flashcards at this point. But, um, no, I, I, I got mine for my uh, Raspberry Pi and dash cams and things like that. Uh -huh. I nice, bought nothing. Nice. Uh, I also bought nothing because I, I found nothing that interesting this year. But, uh, you know, Jeff Barr uh, has written a blog post. And just so you guys know, he apparently bought an Alienware gaming monitor uh, as you know, a 34-inch widescreen. So, you know, very nice. But uh, he uh, wrote a blog post this week to talk about uh, the record-breaking amounts of traffic and sales uh, that the Amazon Web Services infrastructure handled. Uh, he highlighted three services, including the Amazon Prime Video Infrastructure, the Amazon Database Infrastructure, and the Amazon Compute Infra. On the Prime video, you know, he highlighted that they streamed uh, 1080p video at 30 frames per second to multiple CDNs through CloudFront for the entire uh, Prime Day concert on July 10th uh, using Elemental Media Package and Elemental Live Encoders, uh, which is a nice uh, use case for that product. Uh, but the more interesting ones are around the databases and the EC2. So on the database side, they report that Amazon DynamoDB supported 7.11 trillion API calls over the 388 hours with a peak of 45.4 million requests per second. Uh, wow, that's a crazy number. Yeah, a, a peak of what? That's I mean, that's that's huge. I just I did figure out before the show how, how much that would cost if you uh, if you go for nine cents per read unit for forty five forty five point four million requests for two days. It's only going to cost you around about a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, a little bad. more maybe. Little yeah, more. I, I bet they get a better discount than we we do. I I think they do. Yeah, I still think it's amazing that they squeezed three hundred and eighty eight hours into one day. 
<laughs> well, the uh, the prime is actually multiple days, but uh, yeah, <laughs> there's one there's the one name. day where the big uh, the big things are. Yeah, time to change the name. Uh, Amazon Aurora on Prime Day also had about 1,900 database instances and processed over 148 billion transactions and stored 609 terabytes of data and transferred 306 terabytes of data. So that's a huge uh, use case of, of Aurora in a big way. Uh, and then on the compute side, uh, they rolled out what they call a server equivalent, uh, which is a, an internal scaling metric they use of some sort. Uh, they said they started Prime Day with 372,000 server equivalents and scale up to 426 at peak. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds like a lot. Uh, but then on the EBS <laughs> side, uh, the team added an additional 63 petabytes of storage ahead of Prime Day, and the resulting fleet handled 2.1 trillion requests per day and transferred 185 petabytes of data per day. That is some serious bandwidth. That, that's a lot of data. I mean, that's, the scaling of their server equivalents is actually only a 15% increase over what they, um, what they began. began with. I, I assume that that, that 372,000 servers is something that they prepared for the beginning of Prime Day this year, and that their normal server count isn't anywhere close to that. Yeah, I assume it's it's not nearly it's that large. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no reports of any issues this year. Uh, super happy about that. Yeah, no, they did not have any of the major infrastructure things this year that have kind of burned them in the past, which and the internet mercilessly mocks them for being a cloud provider <laughs> who can't scale. So <laughs> I love the tweets, and they're like, you know, you should move to Amazon for this. <laughs> it's always good. <laughs> Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, Visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. AWS AppMesh now supports routing based on HTTP headers and specifying route priorities. This allows you to manage traffic between services in addition to the previous path prefix-based routing and the host-based routing capabilities um, you've had for a while. Leveraging header-based routing, you can create patterns that use things like session persistence or enhance experiences using state. I guess it's kind of getting feature parity with um, the ALB. ALB, yeah. You kind, of wonder, you kind of wonder if they're using the, some of the same uh, code to power the AppMesh. It, it's very possible they are. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm super excited about AppMesh. I, I need to start playing with it more. I think it, it has some really interesting use cases in some apps, but... Uh, it's still not something I'm using day to day. Yeah. Be interested to get it working cross account once we get our uh, transit gateway solution in place. Yeah, for sure. But after all of our complaints about Amazon Systems Manager, they finally released a quick setup uh, for that. Amazon Systems Manager allows you to use a simple button to enable instance permission setup, uh, and it also keeps your SSM agents up to date. This enables best practices capabilities, including scanning for patches and collecting software inventory, providing continuous visibility and control of your cloud and on-premise infrastructure. Uh, and of course, it simplifies resource and app management, shortens the time to MTTR, and makes it easier to operate and manage your infrastructure securely at scale. So if you've been uh, struggling with Systems Manager like we have many times complained on the show, uh, this new quick setup will get you started with probably a little bit overly permissive uh, permission set that you might want to tune down, but at least we'll get you started. Slightly concerning the, um, the least privilege did not apply when they, they came up with the defaults for the agents. No, they, uh, they did not. If you uh, just enable this with a quick setup, everyone who has an AWS account in your, or an IAM account in your AWS account 
uh, will have access to ASH tier boxes. So just be careful about that. There you go. <laughs> make sure make sure you only want the people who actually need access to have that right. I guess they can't call it the easy button. It's the it's the too easy button. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Staples has that uh, maybe uh, trademarked. <laughs> Amazon ECS now supports per-container swap space parameters. Uh, now, when using ECS with your EC2 launch type, uh, you can control the use of swap space on a per-container basis, which I just said. I don't know why I said it twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some things are worth saying twice. Yeah, yeah. so they're, it's, uh, they're worth saying twice. I was, so st- I was so stunned by the news that I had to read it twice. Um, swap space, of course, allows applications to use more memory than they otherwise would be able to access at the cost of higher latency and lower throughput of that memory access. Uh, with the new configurations, you can control each container's use of swap. Different containers can have swap enabled or disabled, and for those that have enabled, the max amount of swap use can be limited per container. So this is a pretty nice scaling opportunity, especially if you uh, you have limited size uh, container nodes and you don't want them to use all the memory, they can go to swap if you don't have a uh, concern around performance. Yeah, this this is great. This solves some really big problems we have, and you know, in, when dealing with kind of like the the top one percentile of of your workloads, if if that if that workload needs a little extra memory, but the container doesn't doesn't have it, then you have a choice: do you deploy big containers for everything, or do you just allow this extra latency when um, when you need the extra memory? And I think it's going to be a money saver for sure. And I mean, start provisioning small containers. Yeah, and also provision just in general less memory in clusters for uh, non-prod workloads as a cost savings or prioritization. um, Yeah, don't forget that a lot of the instance types have um, locally attached storage, so you don't have to rely on EBS. Uh, Senator Ron Widdend of Oregon had uh, written a letter on August 5th to Mr. Jeff Bezos uh, at Amazon uh, over his concerns around Capital One and the breach, uh, including you know potential breach of Ford Motor Company, the Ohio Department of Transportation, etc. Um, and he asked uh, several questions, particularly around uh, server-side request forgery vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, how many times do Amazon customers been compromised by an SSRF attack? Uh, what guidance, if any, has Amazon provided to its customers? And from overall, that this is you know, a Netflix tweet that said this is basically uh, something that's been reported many times to Amazon and not addressed uh, sufficiently. Uh, so that letter went out on August 5th. We didn't report on it because, you know, it's just a letter. Uh, but uh, now uh, Steve Schmidt, uh, C- Chief Information Security Officer for Amazon, has responded uh, in a lengthy email letter back, uh, or printed letter. I actually don't know how these letters to presenters work. Do you have to print them and mail them? I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> they, they use fax machines still. <laughs> ah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of interesting tidbits in here. Um, the first one was, you know, an SSRF, and, and they don't believe the Capital One attack was a SSRF attack initially. It does turn into an SSRF attack after they've compromised the firewall, of course. Uh, but the uh, the more interesting part that goes into this, and if you're interested in the other question answers, um, I won't bore you with them because it's, it's stuff that you already know if you're doing a lot of stuff with Amazon. Uh, but, you know, the one thing I found really interesting was uh, in the last paragraph, they say, uh, Capital One is a sophisticated and thoughtful company with excellent technology and security organization. Sometimes humans make mistakes. And while the Capital One attack happened due to the application misconfiguration mentioned above, there are several actions AWS will take to better help our customers ensure their own security. First, we will proactively scan the public IP space for our customers' firewall resources to try and assess whether they have, may have misconfigurations. We started doing so last week, and we will notify customers proactively of any firewall resources we think could be misconfigured. 
so that's that's a pretty big move. Uh, they also go on to continue, you know, helping customers move on to Macy and guard duty, uh, as well as uh, they talk about we will look into additional belt and suspenders we can add to subsystems deeper in our stack, like the instance metadata service, to provide even more protection for customers. So this sounds like they're going to maybe going to try to fix some of this SSRF uh, concerns that we've been talking about here on the show. Uh, but this is a little interesting tidbits here in the letter from Stephen uh, to the senator. Yeah, I think AWS has always gone sort of above and beyond there what they what they contractually are. Uh, agree to do when it comes to security and that letter was pretty much like a big accusation <laughs> <And so laughs> it I, was i yeah. loved the response i thought it was great i thought it was pretty detailed i thought um it was well written and uh yeah i mean i would expect nothing less than for amazon to basically say it's not our fault and we're going to try to help other people who may also be making this mistake um, which they do all the time they you know they they were the first ones to be out there um, proactively scanning github Maybe not the first ones, but as soon as we figured out that was an issue with people accidentally sticking their access credentials in public repos, um, you know, they were the first ones out there doing it and notifying people. So I think it's great. And that's super fast as well. We, we had um, an engineer accidentally commit uh, some keys to GitHub while he was doing some kind of, uh, like a rank kind of uh, test. And within six hours or so, we got contacted by our account rep notifying us of the of the thing and we found the keys and deleted them so well they, and amazon already proactively disabled them which was the interesting part yep. too it's awesome i mean i guess it's it's important that amazon maintain composure in their responses to things like this because they're trying to win a huge contract yeah oh for sure <laughs> yeah i mean there's definitely <laughs> ulterior motives this but I, th- I thought it was interesting that they're you know they're taking that proactive approach I, i'd be fascinated to see what one of these letters looks like uh, hopefully from someone who's not me <laughs> uh, you know receiving it from the uh from amazon but I w- i'd love to see what one looks like i'm hoping someone on twitter will post one when they get one uh in the future amazon redshift now recommends distribution keys for improved query performance uh, the Amazon Redshift Advisor uh, now has this capability to recommend the most appropriate distribution key uh, for frequently queried tables to improve your query performance. It analyzes the cluster performance and query patterns over time and makes these recommendations to you uh, to use what they consider to be the appropriate distribution key for a table. Uh, Amazon Redshift places a similar number of rows on each node when loading data into that table, and so, of course, sharding out across multiple systems is very important. And the query that joins multiple tables uh, will run much faster if those tables can be joined on their distribution key columns. So uh, really nice enhancement for those trying to do uh, Redshift at scale and being able to segment your data across shard keys and things like that. Uh, now they have machine learning to help you do this work. Yeah, I, you know, as, as much as it's uh, profitable for services to need people to do design for them to work properly. I always thought something like this just needs to be automated. Super cool that it is. Don't forget that Amazon solved the same issue for um, S3. They used to re- ask that you, uh, you know, sort of randomize the first parts of the key name, yeah. things like that. Uh, but, but then they removed that as a, as a constraint. So obviously they're applying some cleverness on the back end to, to help shard the, the S3 objects. So. Yep. Well, you know, if Redshift just can't meet your performance needs, uh, Google has a new moving to Redshift to BigQuery easily uh, process. This blog post details the easy migration from Redshift to BigQuery. The BigQuery data transfer service is used to automate the movement, and there's three simple steps. Uh, go to Redshift and hit unload to S3. The GKE agent will do that for you. As it unloads the operation to S3, it'll then extract the data as a compressed file uh, and transfer it to their cloud storage. The agent then uh, loads that data into BigQuery and you're off to the races using Google's uh, apparently superior 
query engine for Redshift. If they haven't run a tutorial for this, then I'm, I'd be really surprised because Redshift is basically a Postgres database, and any Postgres client can suck all the data out. So it's not really a it's not really a blog post and steps. It's it's a it's an agent you run that does all the steps for you. But uh, it's a pretty handy way to do it if you're trying to look for a quick start. Peter's got nothing on Redshift. I got nothing on uh, Redshift moving to. I got, moving. I got something on Redshift. I still got something on Redshift. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Know, Redshift still only only supports um, uh, 1500 byte MTU, which kind of sucks in the world of huge payloads anymore. It's something they need to address. I wonder how much they can actually address that problem because um, the Redshift technology they bought, right? It was uh, some other company. They bought the technology, and then that company went out of business because Amazon hosted it better. Um, so I wonder if they even have that much access to the source code or when that company went out of business, if they picked up the source to be able to maintain this product long-term. It's always been a question I've had about Redshift long-term. Well, I mean, all that's up in the application end of the stack and the MTU is right down in you know, layer two and three. So, I mean, yeah, in be... theory, it shouldn't be a problem, but I, I, just in general, my comment still stands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess if it's mostly used for, for BI queries, then... You know, who cares if it takes an extra five minutes if you're going to run this job that takes two hours once a month? I mean, I, I mean, I care, which is why I'm mentioning it. But <laughs> but maybe the people who actually pay for Redshift don't care. I thought Redshift was a, a huge, huge, uh, great alternative to, you know, prior to Redshift, you think about it, what were our options like Teradata, other super expensive um, columnar database solutions. And um but it still irks me that I have to, whenever I have to pick instance sizes of a service like this, I feel like I'm not getting scale of a, a massively scalable solution like a DynamoDB or a BigQuery. And it always irks me. feels like it's not the right solution long-term. Yeah, I wonder how long Rich has really, really got to live anymore with, thing, you know, with Athena being so efficient at querying um, objects from S3. Yeah. And the data lake basically replaces what Richard was doing. And uh, does a whole lot better job about it. So, are you good now? I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I got some more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Google obviously think there's enough people using Redshift to to make it worth <laughs> making a tool. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they they of course because they're the number one cloud in the world. So you're of course going to make a tool that moves you from their to their big data system to our big data system. It makes sense. So yeah, uh, I'm done now. All right, cool. Uh, moving on to the other exciting topic of costs, uh, Amazon, or sorry, not Amazon, uh, costs and Amazon are <laughs> synonymous in my head. Uh, <laughs> there's several uh, new building features from uh, Google Cloud for you if you're using Google Cloud. Uh, over the last few months, Google has continued to release cost management features to allow you to provide good cost hygiene and awareness. Uh, they summarize all of these enhancements, uh, which we might have missed here on the show over the past because uh, you know, it's cost management. Who really wants to care about it that much? Uh, so those include uh, the new billing reports, the new billing exports to BigQuery, uh, billing account overviews, resource-based pricing launch, system labels, usage location to billing reports, organizational folders that give structures to your data, uh, GKE usage metering by K uh, Kubernetes namespace or Kubernetes label, uh, cost breakdown report between credits, sustained use discounts, and committed use discounts to understand your net costs, and higher accuracy forecasts. Uh, so even though no one complains about Google costs uh, in their cloud, they are prepared for when you are complaining about it. Sooner or later, people are going to use enough of it to where they will start complaining about it. I think that's the, that's, that's the, uh, that's the mark of a successful cloud provider is when people start complaining about how much you're stuff they're using of yours <laughs> <laughs> well if, if they handle their committed use discounts better than amazon uh handle their reserved instances discounts when applied at the organization level I'd, I'd almost move the entire workload to google just for that feature because deciphering 
billing oh. when you've got RIs bought at the organizational level and they don't necessarily map to the same um, you know to, to the same accounts which consume them on a month-to-month basis you know it's, it's, it makes the it makes the um, like the, the the cost graph for a particular service kind of a bit spiky because this month they get the discount and the next month somebody else got the discount based on I guess auto scaling and who who gets the assignment of the RI so yeah you could use blended cost for that you know <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you know anyone who could uh, you know come in and consult with us on uh, saving costs <laughs> i think i do <laughs> and billing <laughs> i think he's been a guest on our show <laughs> just call Corey. that should be yep. an auto <laughs> just call Corey. we should make some uh, make some pins we should and if he's not available we'll do it for you that's what I was hoping Peter was going to say, but he went for the other guy. So. Oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to plug, trying to plug Foghorn, and here you are, like, no, oh, we like to play hard else. to get. Foghorn <laughs> likes to play hard to get. Yeah, Foghorn doesn't <laughs> want to do cost management. They're like, this is awful. We don't. We're just going to help you move there. We'll yeah, help you manage the cost. <laughs> uh, since the release of Cloud Foundation Toolkit on Google, uh, they have offered automation and templates with Deployment Manager and Terraform to help engineers get set up with Google Cloud. Uh, but apparently it's been missing for all this time BigQuery. And so now GCP is uh, pleased to relaunch the availability of BigQuery Terraform module. Uh, you can now automate the instant instantation and deployment of your BigQuery datasets and tables. Uh, the Terraform module follows the following principles. It has a referenceable template, modular loosely coupled design for reusability, uh, provisioning and association for both datasets and tables, uh, support for full unit testing via Kitchen Terraform, which I forgot existed until I read this article, hmm. and uh, access control, which will be coming very soon. Uh, which is kind of interesting how you do that with a Terraform module, but I'm excited to see that. So now you can go from uh, CFT with Terraform from zero to machine learning in minutes. Did you make that up or did they make that up? They made that up. Oh, okay. I, I couldn't. I'm not that clever. That's pretty good. It does uh, support Terraform uh, 012 and 011. Uh, so if you have not made that pivot, uh, you have both options to you. Uh, and it does allow users uh, to dynamically deploy data sets with any number of tables attached to the data set. Uh, there are some naming standard enforcements with the BigQuery module. Uh, so do uh, take a look at those limitations before trying to roll it out. You made the comment about data ingestion and upload is not supported by the Terraform module. That makes a lot of sense because how can you be stateful about something like that? Um, maybe if you... Maybe you could deploy a Lambda function or, some, or a, you know, not Lambda function, a, what's it called? Google, <laughs> a Google, Google function, <laughs> a Google function, um, which could could be you know could trigger itself on deploy and then import that data for you. But as far as statefulness goes, you, you can't start moving data around. It just doesn't work. Do you ever wonder? Do you think um, Cloud Foundation was was named that way because it sounds very much like Cloud Formation? Oh, totally, totally think that. Yeah, even even you know CFT. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I've got a big problem with Terraform's versioning. Oh. How long has it been around now? Uh, a couple of years, right? A couple of uh, years. How many production workloads depend on Terraform? Lots. And they're, free. they're only at 0.12. Like, .12 is breaking changes from .11, and it went up. Yeah. I, I have this uh, Twitter thread with... Um... <laughs> with uh, Terraform CEO complaining about the lack of semantic versioning and breaking changes from version to version. And his response was that by by not co- sort of committing, th- not, not committing, it lets them be more agile and, and, and pivot and introduce better technology. And my, my response was, well, I'm not going to say my exact response. It was, <laughs> <laughs> there was some expletives involved. There, there was some. There were definitely some. I mean, like, because really, what what they're doing by by not committing to a major release, 
you know, they're charging people a lot of money for Terraform Enterprise. They're not committing. They're making breaking changes, and it's the customers who pay. The customers are investing their time in deploying this and training their people, and uh, rolling out the product, and then. A breaking change happens and it's I mean imagine there's a security vulnerability in dot 11 and and uh, HashiCorp decide that they're not going to maintain that anymore they're going to roll the, the, the fix into into 12 now all of a sudden you have a choice do you do you upgrade everything to 12 with potentially breaking changes and it's they do provide um, a migration tool which doesn't work all the time you know, do you migrate do you put do you go to all the effort to migrate or do you just live with the bug it's it's not a, not a good place to be. I'm kind of annoyed about the whole thing. I feel like we have a better chance of getting hit by a near Earth object than we do getting to 1.0. <laughs> it it does feel like that. I thought this um, when they did 0.1.2, I was kind of convinced they were going to release the Terraform 1.0, and they they just didn't do that. So it definitely, I agree. I I actually spoke at a Terraform HashiCorp event, and uh, I had the product head of product there and head of sales and. They were asking me questions, and, and you know, they were saying, "What are things that we could do better?" And I, I mentioned the semantic versioning thing, um, and you know, they didn't really have a good response there at the time. They're like, "You know, it's something we're definitely looking at," but yeah, same, very similar to the uh, answer that Jonathan got on Twitter, which was, you know, pound sand basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do like the changes in in um, in twelve. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's much more of a coding language now. There's there's syntax. You can do loops. You can do uh, if statements. I mean, there's a bunch of really nice enhancements. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, what's the new Amazon technology again? The uh, the Cloud programming language, CDK. yeah, the CDK. And with the new CDK, I'm like, that's that's even better because that's a full programming language that I can use uh, and just generate CloudFormation. Plus, you know, factor in the CloudFormation drift uh, stuff and some of the other things that they've done in CloudFormation to really improve it. And if it becomes as big of a deal as they want it to be in the future, you know, it may be something to look back at again in the future. Well, I mean, you you can do drift detection by running a Terraform plan to see what needs to be, be corrected again. In fact, Terraform had that. You, you could have used planning as, a, as that to, to solve that for you. But it's not, it's not a web interface, and I have to have the state file to make that work. So if you if you well, ran if you ran that co- if you ran that Terraform apply on your laptop and then I wanted to see what the what the drift was and I don't have that state file or I don't have access to the state file I am hosed. Well, Amazon maintain the state file for you in CloudFormation. The, the, they they, have the, they they keep the same state someplace else. They, they just host it for you. I know. I, I'm, not, I'm just saying I like it better that they host don't it. Make, don't make me defend Terraform. I don't like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> Everybody knows Terraform has a UI. It's called Jenkins. <laughs> Or Terraform Enterprise, if you spend a lot of money on it. Yeah, I think overall my favorite new feature in Terraform 12 is, I'm going to call it 12 instead of 0.12 because it's just so much easier, is that you can return whole objects uh, when from a module. So you don't have to, if you've got you know, 50 different variables you want to return back from a module you want to call, you can just return an object which can which then you can um, you can re- reference the attributes for later on. So it kind of simplifies things enormously. Uh, Azure has uh, released another blog post on their project Tardigrade. Uh, I just like this project because it's a Tardigrade, and I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> Tardigrades, are, of course, are virtually impossible to kill, and that's why they chose that name. Uh, they can be exposed to extreme conditions, but somehow still manage to wiggle their way to survival. Uh, 
NetNet, the, uh, the interesting thing in this article was they talked about their, it's a broad platform resiliency initiative, uh, which employs numerous mitigation strategies, but they uh, highlighted what they're doing with the VM operations failure uh, due to uh, fault on the host server. And so they broke it down to three phases. And so the uh, step one uh, has no impact to running customer VMs. Uh, it simply just recycles all the services running on the host. Uh, and in the rare case that the faulted service is not successfully restart, they proceed on to phase two, uh, which is their diagnostic service runs on the host to all relevant log dumps systematically uh, and to ensure that we can thoroughly diagnose the reason for failure in phase one. Uh, and this comprehensive analysis allows us them to root cause the issue and therefore prevent reoccurrence in the future. Uh, then at a three at a high level, they reset the OS into a healthy state with minimal customer impact to mitigate the host issue uh, by migrating the host over to another running VM uh, before this happens. So, you know, it's, it's not anything really rocket science, but, you know, the th they're really trying to think this through in a big way. And so it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and I think it's something to continue to watch uh, as they try to become the less uh, down cloud provider of the three. Yeah, I, I think it's great that they're transparent, that they're trying to make improvements and being super transparent about what improvements they're making. Because you know that all these improvements are going to generate a lot of know-it-alls telling them that they're doing it wrong. And so oh, of course. It's, it's yeah. great that they're just sucking it up and doing that. And it's also great that it's called Tardigrade, and Tardigrade's just landed on the moon. Did you hear about that? Yes, yes, they did. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a bit of a bit of an accident. I don't think it was an accident. I think it was on purpose. <laughs> uh, if you'd like a, another storage tier from Azure that is not uh, it's not on preview without a HA, they have uh, provided you a new GeoZone redundant storage uh, in Azure. It provides a great balance of high performance, high availability, and disaster recovery, and is beneficial when building HA apps or services in Azure. Uh, the GZRS, because I'm not saying it again, uh, helps achieve higher data resiliency by do doing the following. It synchronously writes data three replicas of your data across multiple Azure availability zones, uh, such as zone redundant storage today, and protecting from a cluster, data center, or entire zone failure. They also have an async replication of the data to another region with the same uh, go, sorry, going into a single region, uh, such as a locally redundant storage protecting from a regional outage. Uh, and this release of the GeoZone redundant storage preview, Azure offers a compelling set of durability options for your storage needs, which then they provide a lovely chart, uh, which all I can say is yikes. Uh, there's a lot of options here, <laughs> a lot of complexity uh, between your locally redundant storage, your geo redundant storage, your read access geo redundant storage, your zone redundant storage, your geo a zone redundant storage and your read access geo zone redundant storage. Uh, so that's a lot of choices. And we have included the chart that I said WOA about. Uh, so you can make your choices uh, if you're using Azure on which of these is the right option for you. Yeah, that's a lot of choices. Although I thought it was kind of cool that 11.9s um, is no longer the, the big number. 16 16.9s, yeah. Wow, yeah. It's a lot of nines. That's a lot of nines. Maybe in the geo redundant storage, geo zone redundant storage premium will uh, improve that even more. <laughs> well, but, you know, if you don't go premium, you can at least go ultra, and you can do that with the new general availability of Azure Ultra Disk Storage, uh, which continues to muddy the waters of Azure has released for the GA. Uh, of all these different products. The new managed disk offers unprecedented and extremely scalable performance with sub-millisecond latency for the most demanding Azure VMs. UltraDisk performance offers sizes ranging from 4 gigs up to 64 terabytes uh, with granular increments, and you can scale this from 300 IOPS uh, per gigabit to over 160,000 IOPS per disk. And there's a maximum of 2,000 megabits per second uh, per disk. Megabytes, right? Uh, I, I think that's network traffic, so that's megabits. Hmm. Although uh, someone will read the article right now and collect, correct that for me if they'd like to. Oh, I just saw a big B, but maybe that was a... It's a big B. 
All right. It's megabytes per disk. I think it's megabytes. Throughput is usually... But it's, it's a MBPS. I, I don't know about that. I'm going to go Google because Google that's what I do with my... Yeah. Big B is usually bytes. Little B is usually bits. No, big big M, little B. M, large M, large B stands for megabytes per second. Ha-ha! You're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You were right. I was wrong. I'll take it. Uh, and then if you want more complexity, uh, you can always use Azure Archive Storage, uh, to, which has new expanded capabilities for faster, simpler, and better uh, archive. Uh, these enhancements include the priority retrieval from Azure Archive, uh, which standard rehydration, which is the new name for what Archive used to do uh, over the last few years, is the new default option with retrievals taking up to 15 hours. And the high re high rehydrate, oh, wow, that's a hard word to say, high rehydrate priority fulfills the need for urgent data access from Archive with retrievals for blogs uh, blobs under 10 gigabits taking less than one hour. So that's pretty nice. They also included the upload blob direct to access tier of choice. So you can take that data and put it right into hot, cool, or archive storage. And you're no, no longer beholden to that nasty lifecycle policy. Uh, and a copy blob enhancement. Uh, so allow you to copy data from archive to any place temporarily and to those different tiers of storage. Uh, so that's a nice feature for you to also increase your complexity and decisions. Yeah, all these features sound like they're starting to have enough customers to where the customers are driving a bunch of these features which is cool yeah you can see it now you can see well they're walking into these uh, sales meetings saying well aws has this what do you have and they're saying yeah well and then they finally come up with an idea yep well, moving on microsoft has bought a java company uh, so hell has frozen over they uh, <laughs> bought uh, j clarity to make their azure workloads run better uh, apparently, JClarity LTD is a British provider of tools for the Java software project. Seven-year-old company sells uh, two tools, actually. The first one is called Sensum and can identify software inefficiencies such as modules that consume more memory than it ought to, while a second offering called Illuminate flags performance issues. It also uses machine learning to generate automated troubleshooting suggestions. Uh, the Microsoft Azure and JClarity engineers will work together to build a better platform for Azure Java customers. And there's a quote here from Chief Executive Officer of JClarity, uh, Martin Verberg. The JClarity team will continue to work out in the open in various Java communities. With Microsoft support, we anticipate being able to contribute back in new and exciting ways. That's, they're really diversifying. The Sensum product, when I looked into it a little bit further, um, is actually really cool because it actually uh, uses machine learning to make JVM sizing recommendations, which is one of my big complaints <laughs> about JVM is having to figure that out. Uh, so they actually have some tooling around that, which is kind of nice. But uh, unfortunately, now it's owned by Microsoft, so I can never use it again. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I'd be curious but, uh, to see what they do with 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 the team though, right? It might not just be the tools that they're interested in. For a company of the size, only two little products, um, you know, they're buying the team more than anything and that expertise. And uh, Microsoft, apparently they make an open source component or an open JDK version of some sort. And Microsoft's a f an investor in that uh, or a co-sponsor. And so I think it's it just a natural synergy, aqua hire type thing and, and gives them a couple tools that'll make it easier for Java in uh, Azure. So overall, big win. Yeah. Well, we haven't had any Coretto news in a while either. So now Microsoft have bought these guys. I'm thinking maybe Amazon will come out with their own optimization tools for, for Java. Mm, maybe. Azure Security Center continues to, uh, to vex me with their single-click remediation and Azure Firewall just-in-time support. Uh, which I don't want to end the second one so much, but the, uh, the new Security Center... Uh, 
setting for remediation of bulk resources is now in preview. With a single click, you can now uh, affect many services that have vulnerabilities. So if you detect uh, potentially like an open application to the web, you know, that shouldn't be open to the web, you can now select multiple entities and bulk apply your changes right from Amazon or Azure's uh, security center. Uh, so you can now do those type of horrible, horrible things to your teams and uh, take downtime. Uh, typically your security team is making these changes without consulting with the uh, operations temp team. What would you call yeah. that button if you were going to name it something? One word. <laughs> I would call it the take production down button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird pattern, isn't it? Because if people have got their Terraform state files or whatever they do to deploy things to Azure, um, yeah, making those changes out of band, they're only going to get reset again the next time somebody applies changes. So You can read through this, this list of remediations available uh, for you in the preview. Uh, the first one, web apps, function apps, and API apps should only be accessible over HTTPS. Uh, remote debugging should be turned off for function apps, web apps, and API apps, which you know you love for your dev environment where you're trying to code. Uh, Cross-origin uh, scripting uh, should not be allowed for every resource to access your function apps, web apps, or APIs. Uh, transparent data encryption for SQL database, monitoring agents, diagnostic logs. I mean, there's a ton of things that are very damaging if they're implemented incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of these things should be non-functional requirements of, of features that people are deploying on Azure servers rather than uh, fixing them once they're already in production. And if you can detect that you did them wrong, why can't you prevent them from happening in the first place? <laughs> right. So. I mean, I guess I guess vulnerability assessments. People find new vulnerabilities, and some of those things make make some sense. But you know, having the agents installed and only allowing access over HTTPS, those are just no-brainers. Or just go with the air gap firewall. All problems are solved. Yeah, sneaking it. <laughs> Just-in-time virtual machine access uh, in the Azure firewall uh, is the other part, which I don't mind so much. Uh, this is the just-in-time VM access uh, reduces your VM exposure to network volumetric attacks uh, by providing controlled access to VMs only when needed. Uh, when you enable JIT for your VMs, you create a policy that determines the ports to protect, how long the ports should remain open, and approved IP addresses that can access it. Uh, requests are logged and activity logs. So you can easily monitor and audit access. And of course, all of this is returned up to the Azure Security Center uh, to display your approved requests so you're aware of who's doing what in your infrastructure. That part I actually don't mind so much. The uh, the first part I'm not so big on. I guess it kind of goes to the security and layers thing, but it seems like I think I'd rather go with the proxy solution. Agreed. There you go. Well, that's it for the new news. Let's move on to lightning round, Peter. Amazon CloudFront announces new edge location in Israel. I wonder if this uh, precedes a soon-to-be Amazon region there. Maybe, or maybe just a closet. <laughs> never know. You never know these edge locations. Yeah. It's an outpost. Well, there's a lot of tech companies in Israel, which seem to be constantly bought up by larger American companies. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of uh, Israeli companies and startups, especially in the security space. So, yeah, I mean, anytime you can provide them faster access to their data, it's, it's there. There you go. Alexa for business customers can now manage how their data improves Amazon's services. I look forward to Walmart ordering a couple hundred thousand of these then to uh, have in their eating rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) AWS code build adds support for Amazon Linux 2. I didn't realize that would be a thing that wasn't supported. It's a little odd. How long has Amazon Linux 2 been around? A couple of years now? Yeah, a few years. I mean, it was in beta for a long time, though, so in fairness. I still don't understand how it could not be supported. AWS Site-to-Site VPN now supports certificate authentication. Yay. <laughs> About time. And this drives some revenue for Amazon, though, because you need a CA. Yeah. Private CA. Private CA. To, to issue those certificates. So That's true, you do. Yep. Get, your wallet, get your wallets out. 20 bucks a month for your VPN, 250 for your private CA. Amazon Athena now supports querying data from Amazon S3 requester pays buckets. 
There's a Nigerian spam hack in this somewhere. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is exactly, but I'm I'm sure there's a way I could say, oh, look, all this amazing data you can query, and then, you know, <laughs> you use Athena to query it, and I, I get paid. It's perfect. That's neat. I actually hope the request to pays uh, sort of feature gets rolled out to many more things, especially stuff like Lambda functions, so we, could, we can start to provide solutions which customers pay on demand to use. You can have that in the API gateway. So if you publish an API that goes back into a Lambda function, there's actually... Uh, metering and billing capabilities inside the gateway, so you can actually generate invoices directly to the customer based go. on their uh, client ID in the gateway. Yeah, but I I don't want to have to send the customer an invoice separately. That's 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 just kind of like reporting, and then I, it's still me who has to send them the bill and collect the money. If they connected that to marketplace, they could just bill the customer directly. That's what I want to see. I want to, I want to see that that handled by Amazon, and if I have to pay them a percentage of that fee, it at least would save me having to chase money down. Amazon Chime adds call history for voice and video calls. That does not need to be a very long history file, does it? Yeah. <laughs> let me uh, let me check, let me check my history to see uh, how long it's been. And uh, hold on. Oh, sorry, it's updating because I haven't loaded it in a long time. Yeah. Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds support for slow query logging. I want fast query logging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you don't want your query logging to be slow. I mean, exactly. it'd, be, it'd be nice if they could take these slow queries and, you know, use machine learning to tell me why it was slow. That'd be next that step. That'd be maybe. neat. Why are they logging these things too? They're logging into CloudWatch logs, I assume. I assume, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. Amazon RDS for MySQL supports 8.0.16, now making only one revision behind. Thank God. <laughs> if they only could get there on Postgres and every other database that's out there. Yeah, I wonder if Oracle are going to sort of pull the plug on MySQL licensing just like everybody else has done for... Uh, well, you know, Elasticsearch and Mongo and... Maria. They look like they yeah. already support Maria, so that's good. Yeah. I'm surprised they haven't pivoted completely away from MySQL, given the hatred for uh, for Oracle. Well, I mean, I, I think it's because it's still open source at the end of the day. And until my, until Oracle messes with the licensing, I think they'll continue to not mind. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's coming someday. I, yeah. Just a matter of time. Just a matter yeah. of time. I guess you, you don't need... It doesn't not have the brand of MySQL though. I mean, it's been been around for as long as you know most people have been around anymore. Uh, speaking of uh, Larry Ellison and Oracle, though, did you guys see uh, Corey's seventy uh, fifth birthday video to uh, Larry? <laughs> I did. That's hilarious. I did not. <laughs> Check that out on the uh, last week in AWS uh, dot com newsletter. Uh, he has a fantastic. Uh, uh, Bud Light uh, parody video that they made for about Larry Ellison. Awesome. So, my my favorite line it though is, you know, it takes real talent to build a law firm that also makes database software. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. That's yeah, pretty good. It's pretty good. Announcing the general availability of Python support for Azure functions. You know, given Microsoft, I, I did I did have to click on this link to make sure they weren't just supporting Python two point seven just as it was being deprecated. Yeah. But no, it is it is the the newer version of Python. Yeah, yes, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, finally they can they can now match parity with what mo most people do for functions. <laughs> so I'm so glad. Yeah, we could run Cloud Custodian there. But you know, if you wanted to run .NET, you could have done it there on Azure Functions. But Python, no, no, sorry. So glad to see that finally made it. Ah, uh, the winner comes from far away with requester paid buckets. Yeah, that was good, Justin. But I mean, I think Jonathan got two dings. I think I got the one. But whatever. I don't want a pity vote. Leave yeah. me alone. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Eight to twelve. Pretty, pretty uh, funny. Or thirteen now, because thirteen. Oh wow, eight to thirteen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you were you were catching up there pretty strong. I, I was, yeah. Yeah, you were because you were already in the doldrums there for a while. We should, we should get more guests on too. That way they can they can uh, 
Uh, have, have a chance. Have a chance. Let's do it. They got, they got eight for me, 13 for you. That's 21. And yes for three. That's 24. And we got 36 episodes in now, so what happens to the others? Uh, I had a couple, <laughs> and I took myself off the uh, list. But uh, okay. I don't know what happened to the others. I also think we – didn't we restart in January? We did. We yeah, changed the right. rules. We should restart again pretty soon. We talked about that once. You you haven't done it yet, and since you make the rules, we, we let you go with it. We'll 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 start at the beginning of the year next year again. Well, I I heard that the rules were there were no rules last episode, so <laughs> maybe I'll just edit these numbers myself yeah. in, the, in in this doc. <laughs> yeah, it's just like one million. I got one million points. Peter has to pay my mortgage this month. <laughs> I'm gonna upgrade the lightning round to lightning round premium. Yeah. yeah. Oh, lightning um, round ultra. That'd be cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week's show. Uh, it's been a fun time again, as always. And again, like I said, it was a little less news this week, so that made it nice. Uh, we'll be back next week, as usual, here at the Cloud Pod. Not that we don't like talking about the news or the cloud in general, and that's what we're here for. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we like to bring we like to bring quality news, and when there's you know 800 stories, it's like wow, we can't cover all of this. And it's a little bit better when it's a, a smaller number that I can actually research and and give you good input. Absolutely. So. Oh, I have an update. Oh. I finally got accepted to the GitHub Actions. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. All right. Cool tool coming up. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Is that it for the show? That's it. That's a wrap. Do you want to talk about my uh, my trip to Seattle? Oh yeah. Recording. Yeah. Tell us. Yeah. So I, so I don't think I can talk about the the content yet because it's an out. So so why did you go though? It was very kind of last minute. Dis- Justin's disappearing up to Seattle, and uh, what was the purpose? Uh, well, so this week they had the um, AWS Developer Influencer uh, event at the uh, in the Westin up there. Uh, and so they had uh, basically the who's who of um, Amazon Twitter. And so like Ben Kehoe, um, Eric Esch, uh, as I know him on uh, Twitter, etc. So tons of people, tons of uh, you know faces you'll recognize from Twitter. And so they were doing um, a three-day event. I think they I was there on day two to talk. I guess there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Because they're so quiet. I, I didn't know what happened. We're listening. <laughs> we're on the edges of our seats waiting. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sorry. So anyway, so I was there. I was there on day two, um, and so I was in a, a panel where they were talking. You know, they wanted us to give the business perspective of using Lambda uh, in this breakout, and so um, I got to tell them all about our Lambda journey and and how we use Lambda at my day job, uh, which was super fun. And then they a bunch of people, you know, uh, got to go hang out with them at the computer museum up in Seattle afterwards, which was super fun. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a good time. But uh, the day two, so that was the one day, and that was why I really went up there for. Then they they tacked on. Um, a recording of a video they're gonna put on YouTube at some point about um, something I can't talk about yet. Uh, but yeah, so I got to see how they how they make those all those YouTube videos they do in the studio and the setup. And it, I have to say that's that's quite the process that they have up there. Yeah, it's legit. It, it's funny because it's just a normal office building, and you know, you're walking around. All these people have cubes and all that. And then you go, you know, this one basically, I'd say it's. A, relatively small conference room size and you know it has tons of video equipment and all the stuff and they have the full stage kind of set up and all you know all the lighting and all the the different things and they have multiple camera angles and the production and they have producers on staff and 
it's a whole thing. And then the worst thing though is that if you uh, if you work in that little area around that studio, they turn the air conditioning off, and they oh, have all these no. all these lights that say basically you have to open the window if you're hot. <laughs> it's like oh, I would I would not want to work in that office building uh, for that reason alone. But uh, but yeah, no, it's really interesting. I'll, uh, I'll let you guys know when my video is up on YouTube, cool. and you guys can check it out, and I can talk about it a little bit more then. Uh, but uh, yeah, I gotta I gotta do something with Ben Kehoe, uh, awesome. which is super awesome. So. And he's a he's a he's over from uh, Boston uh, or from the uh, iRobot guys. So he's a, which is super fun because uh, you know I I talked or I listened to his podcast when he did it with Corey on uh, Screaming in the Clouds, and it was funny because he he comes across very much as a uh, vacuum salesperson, <laughs> and and just a casual conversation with him for about you know five to ten minutes, uh, we the conversation turned to vacuums, and he was selling me on a new vacuum from Roomba. So uh, he's a he's a technologist, but he also is a very passionate about what iRobot is doing, which is super fun. Super fun that's to find guys like that. Cool. That's cool. I mean, they, I know they make more than vacuums. We've done some projects with them in in, uh, in our previous lives. But uh, so I got to ask though about about Ben. Like, does he bumble around the room, kind of bumping into walls and things before he finally settles down in, in a chair, like the vacuums do? Or is, <laughs> is, is he is he kind of you know normal? No, he, he he's a, he's a, he's totally normal. Uh, you know, he's very opinionated about his love of, of lambda and functions, and uh, so that's great. And you know, but uh, yeah, no, he's he does not bumble around like the Roomba does. <laughs> 